This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. This week, in the wake of breaking news, a return to childhood. I'm 47 years old. I grew up in Newton, Massachusetts. The Boston Marathon passed 50 yards from my front door. 40 years ago, as seven-year-olds, Mark Leibovich and I did brisk business selling lemonade to bystanders, passing water to runners. And later that evening, back at home, a young kid just beginning his news consciousness watched with his dad people like John Chancellor, Tom Brokaw, and Walter Cronkite report the evening news that President Nixon, who'd been re-elected a year earlier, was under fire. Watergate was all my parents could talk about. It lasted for another year and change before the president finally packed it in. In 1976, I was 11. Jack Foltz won the Boston Marathon that year, one of the few in that era that Bill Rogers didn't win. All the president's men came out. At the bottom of our show today, we'll connect with Jason Gay of the Wall Street Journal, who used his ink this week to uplift us with a return to run with Bill Rogers. But back to Watergate. My, my brother was 16. He looked to me like a young Robert Redford, who... That year was filling the screen as Bob Woodward, along with Dustin Hoffman as Carl Bernstein in In All the President's Men. First thriller I ever saw and still one of the best. Now, 40 years after Watergate and 37 since the film, I'm brought back to my youth. First with the mayhem happening this week around the marathon in my hometown in Boston. And now with the documentary from Robert Redford and Andy Lack, All the President's Men Revisited, which premieres Sunday night at 8 p.m. on the Discovery Channel. Here to discuss the documentary, discovery, and other matters at the intersection of the entertainment business, media, and politics are the president and CEO of Discovery Communications, David Zaslov, and his trusty lieutenant, the senior executive VP of Discovery, my old friend from the White House, David Levy. Welcome, gentlemen, to Polyoptics. Good to be here. Thanks, Josh. So let's start. We're going to get a little bit to um, what's happening in... the here and now later, but I'd love to uh, hear what the scene was like last night in Washington. You don't often get uh, both the actors who portrayed Woodward and Bernstein and Woodward and Bernstein themselves on the same stage. Quite a big night in Washington. It was a big night for us. I think, you know, seeing uh, Robert Redford, an old and dear friend of mine who worked so hard on this project uh, with Andy Lack, and we fell in love with it. Uh, We couldn't be prouder of it, but to see uh, Redford and Lack together with uh, Woodward and Bernstein and Ben Bradley uh, and and just seeing them being just happy to be there happy to relive some of the great memories of that time and they had all seen the film and really enjoyed it and it was a special night it was a special night yeah you would have liked it Josh because we did it in partnership with the White House Correspondents Association so all the whole crew was there George Condon and Steve Scully and uh, Ed Henry moderated and was kind of the MC. and it was just it was a special night it was a little piece of history you know, I, I think I was three when Watergate happened, and you really, if you take a step back, that the film and what happened there really shaped the course of history. And I'll just tell one really quick anecdote that I didn't realize, that the Saturday Night Massacre, so Nixon fired his attorney general, then the deputy attorney general. So the third guy in line who actually executed the orders was Robert Bork. 
That's right. It's, all right, so I didn't really appreciate that. So it gives a whole new context to the you know the the Supreme Court battle and how Watergate rippled through all the way to where the politicization of the Supreme Court is today really stemmed from that incident too. It's just an amazing look last night and a great great night for our company. And for me, Archibald Cox was an introduction to the crew cut. I'd never seen one before, remembering <laughs> the, the, my youth and watching Archibald Cox getting fired There's by Robert Clark. a lot Robert of crew Clark. cuts these days. My kids have crew cuts. <laughs> Let's it's a different kind of crew cut, though. Let's listen to number five, Robert Redford, about the film. A president had been driven from office because the American people had learned the truth about Richard Nixon. But how he had learned the truth, that fascinated me. Nixon's downfall had begun two years earlier when five men were caught spying and wiretapping at the Democratic National Headquarters at an office complex called Watergate. Over at the Washington Post, two rookie reporters, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, picked up the story. Their investigation would unfold like a political thriller. And so I thought that the part that they played in exposing the scandal would make a movie, maybe even a good movie. In Hollywood terms, Woodward and Bernstein were the good guys. And their weapon was the written word. Did he confirm it? Absolutely. You gotta tell Bradley. I played Bob Woodward in the film. Carl Bernstein was played by Dustin Hoffman. David Zaslav, last year at the Upfronts, uh, you announced the uh, th this show was going to to come to Discovery, and you and I think Eileen O'Neill was quoted as saying as saying that Discovery really needed to deliver in the history space, and especially with baby boomers. Uh, what is tell us about the actual inception of the project with you, Redford Lack, and Redford's production company? Sure. Um, for Discovery, we really did feel that core to our brand is history. Uh, but that really had nothing to do with how this project came together. Uh, years ago, when I was at NBC, I oversaw the Sundance Channel. And I got a chance to work with Redford, uh, who's just an, an amazing storyteller, was a great friend, and uh, we had a lot of good times there. And we talked about wanting to get together and do a project. So each year, we had a tradition. We'd go to the US Open. And uh, about two or three years ago, we were at the Open. And there's a scene. Um, uh, there's a scene from *The Way We Were*, one of my favorite movies, where Redford's on an, on a boat with his best friend, and he turns to his friend, and a friend turns to him and says, uh, "Your best year, you know, your 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 favorite moment." And uh, I turned to him that day and said, uh, "The best time you ever had doing a movie." And Bob then spent the next 20 minutes talking about all the president's men, about what was going on in the country, on uh, what an incredible time in his life it was. Uh, great stories about calling Woodward and Bernstein and saying, hey, this is Rob Redford and I, I'd like to meet with you guys. And they, were hang they hung up on him. They didn't think it was real. They, didn't think it they thought it was uh, a joke. But he actually went to Washington to meet with them and he was passionate about this subject. And it, it was a great time in his life. And so a few months later, I called him up and I said, uh, remember what you said about all the president's men. Uh, it's a great story. The 40th anniversary is coming. And somebody has to tell that story again so that uh, a new generation can hear it and we can take it around the world, which we uniquely can because we're in over 220 countries. 
And I said, I, I would love to take that story around the world, but only if you'll tell it. You did uh, the fiction version uh, to, to unbelievable acclaim, and I think it inspired a, a generation by telling the Woodward Bernstein story, and they became heroes. Um, you should tell that story, the real story. Everyone's still there. You can get to Ben Bradley. You can get to Woodward Bernstein. And um, he said yes on the phone. And uh, at, at that point, we started to think about, all right, how do we do this? And uh, Andy Lack has been a friend of mine for 20 years. Um, and I talked to Andy just for advice about it. And Andy said to me, uh, you know, for the 20th anniversary of Watergate, I did a special with Mike Wallace for CBS. Uh, Redford and I went back, took a look at it, and we said, there's only one guy that, that can do this with us, and that was Andy. And so uh, and it's, it's really been, I think it's, it's, it's been a passionate ride for both of them, also for Peter Schnell, uh, who's worked very hard. They were and a great team. And we've had Peter on the show before. You know, I was just with Peter, great storyteller. So I think, yep. you know, it's uh, the three of them as a team, very, very compelling. And they told a wonderful story. It felt fresh. Uh, and we're going to take it all around the world now, and I think it'll have an impact. Two ways that it really sounded fresh to me, and I want to play a cut from uh, the show and then t uh, ask another question of David Levy, but uh, is the notion that there's Robert Redford making The Great Gatsby, and like every other American, riveted to the Watergate hearings and Chairman Sam Irvin. And he's talking about how he's reading... Woodward and Bernstein's articles, and I'm thinking that wherever he is, how in the pre-internet days do you actually get a hard copy of the Washington Post? Let's hear number nine. On August 1st, 1972, I picked up Woodward and Bernstein's third article on Watergate. It said that one of the Watergate burglars had gotten money from the Nixon campaign. What the reporters would soon discover was that Nixon's re-election committee was engaging in a campaign of espionage and sabotage against the Democrats. Woodward and Bernstein were beginning to pull back the curtains on a strange and shadowy world. And I wanted to know how they were doing it. I got really intrigued with the idea of making a film about Woodward and Bernstein because one was a Jew, the other was a wasp. One was a radical liberal and the other was a Republican. And what interested me was, beyond that, was really the hard work that they did together to get at this story. So I gave Woodward a call. He was pretty chilly on the phone. I said, hi, this is Bob Redford calling. He said, yeah. And I said, I, I wanted to know if I could meet you and your partner because I have this idea I want to share with you. But David Levy, this is not the Bob Redford from the way we were uh, anymore or even the Sting. This is an older man, and you look at the way he and Dustin Hoffman talked to each other on stools at Redford's house. I believe that's where the filming was. So to make this uh, documentary for Discovery relevant, you need to have modern voices that another generation can connect with, and that's people like Jon Stewart uh, and Rachel Maddow and others. What were what was going through your head as you watched screenings of this and how it was touching a new generation? Yeah, no, Zaz and I were talking about that this morning. That's one of the really interesting production techniques that the film uses. It's kind of bringing those contemporary voices and, and kind of give it generational context. Uh, I think it's very important to make it more relevant. You know, part of the challenge with this film is, and I think the Washington Post reporter pointed it out at the beginning, what's the peg? Uh, 
right? So the 40th anniversary of the break-in was last year. So why should I care now? Why does this matter to me now? And in a, a fragmented and competitive media landscape, how do you break through with that? And so I think having someone like John Stewart, Rachel Maddow, J Joe Scarborough, kind of the voices of, of uh, the public policy debate today, uh, commenting and reflecting back on it, I think was very important for the film. And I thought those voices really lent itself to a contemporary take and, and, and made it more accessible for me. And I think for folks who are, weren't um, you know, cognizant or alive of what was going on at the time, uh, making it more relevant and accessible and more modern, I think was really, really important to the storytelling of the film. And you have someone like Robert Redford, who's who's a legend and an icon, a historical figure in its own right, but maybe doesn't have the same resonance with the next generation. And for us in the you know, media business, and you're a great student of this, how do you make it accessible to a broader audience? And I think having those voices part of the the, the storytelling was, was 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 critical. And there's a tremendous sense of humor and irony in that too, especially as you listen to John Stewart. Let's hear number four. Every generation has to lose their virginity, and it was just the day that my generation did, but. To think that we're the only generation that had that experience is probably the mistake that a lot of generations make. So David Zaslav, a lot of the profiles of you begin with your work uh, with John Hendricks, Discovery, and uh, the letter you wrote to Robert Wright, but what were you like as a 13-year-old as this story was unfolding uh, for a young David Zaslav? Well, I was, uh, I was mostly playing sports, but I was a, a liberal Democrat. Uh, I wasn't very political. But I do remember being shaken by it. I was in, uh, I was at camp at the time, and it was like the uh, everything stopped. I don't think I understood the relevance of it at the time, um, but it was a powerful moment. And I, I think that, as I talk to my kids, it's Watergate was uh, a historical moment and a lesson, a lesson about journalism. It was a lesson about power. It was a lesson about politics. And in order to take that lesson. Uh, we need to make sure that the next generations recognize what happened. And, you know, for me, one of, the, one of the things that's important here is not just documenting Woodward and Bernstein and Ben Bradley, but talking to a lot of the other voices and people that were there at the time. And so there was some, there was some new things that we were able to get on, on tape into the film to become part of history. So when people look back 5, 10, 15 years from now, uh, this is part of that look. And that's part of what Discovery is about. So for me, this is, in terms of what the brand is, satisfying curiosity, uh, going back, taking a look at Nixon, looking at journalism, and having people ask, you know, what's changed? How are we different as a country? What's different about journalism? How does technology change uh, journalism? Uh, could this have happened today? You know, I was struck by the Supreme Court, uh, eight to zero, on, on the decision of releasing the tapes nothing partisan about 8-0, yep. uh, that this would have never worked. It, Nixon would have never been, uh, he, he would have never felt this pressure and he would have never resigned if it wasn't for his own party making the decision that what he did crossed the line. And so, you know, the, the things are a lot more partisan today and it's, uh, it's a question for me, I think it's a question for everybody, what would be different if we faced some of these same issues and what's different about journalism today? Are there uh, how many Woodward and Bernsteins are out there, or and and when is journalism really about journalism, and when is journalism about, you know, opinion? Uh, that was a point that Carl made yesterday. That uh, that growing up we thought, at least aspirationally, that journalism was about truth. There's nothing. You know, the truth is is always on a spectrum, 
but a lot of what we see as news, all of us today in today's society, is, uh, is you start with the people that agree with you. Uh, and when you look at it through that specter, it's always, I think, a little bit harder to find truth. One of the very interesting characters in your documentary is Hugh Sloan, who has a pivotal scene in All the President's Men, uh, and that Woodward and Bernstein take information that they get and they uh, write one of their stories that imply what Bob Haldeman may or may not have said to the grand jury, and they get it wrong. And you see the anguish uh, in today's Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein about the decisions that they had to make at that moment about whether they needed to fall on the sword for the Washington Post, for Ben Bradley, and in fact resign. And as you move ahead 40 years to this week and some of the rushes to judgment and errors that have been made in the coverage of Boston, you do get lessons, don't you? You do. Um, but there was an interesting anecdote that, that Bob and Carl uh, uh, shared with us last night. And that when they knocked on that door, and it was, it was a big moment in this story, getting to Sloan, um, that his wife answered. Uh, and by the way, he and his wife were there last night, but his wife answered, and she looked at them, uh, and she was silent for a moment, and then she said, uh, this is an honest house. And uh, it was a very brave statement, and uh, it, was a, you could, it was a, must have been a very scary time. You know, when you're dealing with those kind of stakes and that kind of power, um, meeting in dark alleys, late at night, people knocking on your door, what can you say? Should you say the truth? Uh, so it was, uh, I thought, a very interesting anecdote. Uh, but we, yeah. the, the, the point about um, slowing and the mistake is important. Um, and I was struck by the fact that they said they got it wrong. They went to their editor and they said they got it wrong. They were ready to resign. Yeah. And uh, they weren't defensive. Uh, and and uh, they, were, they felt like they have to double down and make sure they don't do that again. Let's hear a very young Stephen Collins as Hugh Sloan in number 11. The cash that financed the Watergate break-in, five men had control of the fund. Bernstein and Woodward showed up, and they uh, first recommended that the right thing to do was tell them the whole story so they can print it. We're not asking you to be our source. All we're asking you to do is confirm. I'm not your source on Haldeman. I mean, they were very engaging people. A little bit the good guy, bad guy, cop kind of routine. Say we wrote a story that said that Haldeman was the fifth name to control the fund. Right. Would we be in any trouble? Would we be wrong? And they had established through conversations and other means that I would have acknowledged basically five people as having the authority to tell me to dispense funds. And uh, one of them was Bob Haldeman. Let me put it this way. I would have no problems if you wrote a story like that. If you wouldn't. No. David Levy, it's coming up on uh, a dozen years or so since you left government service, but did the way in which Hugh Sloan would acknowledge but not acknowledge ring at all true as a NSC spokesman who needed to provide information without actually providing it? Well, I did go on deep background a lot. It's true. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, it, it's interesting how a lot of the ground rules were really established there. And, that, and that's one of the uh, lessons I took away from the film and, and watching it last night was modern journalism was, was really born then and, and the whole notion of investigative journalism. And, you know, you played the clip of John Stewart talking about losing the virginity. It really was. We've never been the same since, right? The imperial presidency was broken down and the trust and the... 
uh, suspicion in government was really born out of that. And when we were in the White House, um, you know, look, we dealt with that a lot. But we, people presumed that you had a political agenda first. And so being able to shape a message or explain a policy, you had to get over that hurdle. And I know you and I struggled with that a lot. We, there was a presumption of, all right, what's the real agenda here? And so, yeah, you had to go off background or try to explain it. And, you know, I know our philosophy in the Clinton White House was always try to use information uh, to help shape the dialogue and help shape uh, the conversation and drive your policy goals. But I tell you, one of the things I really took away when they talked about this last night is when we were in the White House, Josh, you remember, there was no Internet. Right. We started in 93. We had no cell phones. Right? There was barely a cable television. There was only CNN. And so to manage the message was a lot easier back then, right? You know, the, the, the network news it was done by 630. Uh, they had the evening papers. They went to bed, and you were pretty much done at 7. And if you remember, we used to send an intern out at midnight to go down to the Washington Post loading docks to get the paper the next morning to see what was going to be in there. You know, how quaint that sounds today. And so I... I it was a healthy debate and discussion last night at the panel whether today's 24-hour news cycle, and this is in the film too, in the social media universe, would that have allowed this story to take off a lot faster? And so you didn't have two journalists kind of doggedly pursuing it. You would have had a thousand bloggers picking it apart, and so it would have been exposed quicker. Or conversely, and David Korn was there, the modern-day uh, yep. Woodward Bernstein, in some respects, he broke the 47% tape. He was saying that in some respects it could be a negative because it would have burned off so quickly. People would have focused on, oh, there's a break-in, those guys are bad, and we report it, and three days later we would have moved on to something else. And so that patience that led to bringing down Nixon, maybe in today's world, wouldn't have happened. And so it is a whole new world here. In the ground world, uh, I don't know if a blogger or a uh, talk show radio host, you can go on background or deep background anymore. It's just the, the new rules to the game today. I was struck by how long the process was. It was, you know, from start, these guys were working this story. Two years. You know, for two Incredible. years. Two years. Think about it today. What paper would have the money to let two journalists spend two years digging up a story? You wouldn't have that today. You'd have to post ten blog posts, you know, and it just it's just a different world. And, and I, don't, I don't think that story gets broken in today's world, in my, myself, but... Um, the patience of our culture and the media world has just accelerated so, so, so much. You know, yeah, one of the points that uh, David Carr made, which I thought was interesting, br brilliant media writer, yeah. and he talked about how with technology today, it's so different because you can go on the web and you can go to Google and you can, and, and you can go to Twitter and you can check facts. And he talked about, in, in a very compelling way, how many things you can learn uh, that can inform uh, your, your view of a particular issue. And after hearing him, I, th I felt myself nodding and going, he's right. And then Bob Woodward basically said, I'm not so sure. Because all that information you're getting on the web, how do you sort through what's real information, what's real truth, what's opinion, what's spin? So you're getting a lot of data. But if you're drawing conclusions from it, it's different than what a journalist does when they knock on a door, when they ask a question, when they follow up with all the other sources and they do that work. So it, it, I think it helps, but his view was interesting, that it, does, it certainly doesn't replace it. Yeah, I mean, Clark, uh, David Carr has this one quote that's in the movie, and he may have used it last night as you describe it, David Zaslav. He said, all access to all known thought is one click away. 
And as I was watching your documentary, it seemed because some of the questions as you think about whether or not to tune in on Sunday night is, are they, what are they going to tell me new? As you turned each corner uh, in what All the President's Men Revisited, you're treated to different ideas that you had not put in one place again. And I love that part uh, at the end. It might even be a surprise, but I'll say it anyway. Spoiler alert. The the return of Sir David Frost, David Levy and David Zasloff. Yeah. I mean, what, what, what he, he basically says exactly what you said, David Zaslav, that two years, Mr. President, here's what uh, here's what you ought to be saying, the three things. Well, yeah, I mean, I was struck by that, um, that Nixon couldn't even apologize, couldn't even admit it at the end. After all he'd been through, he still was so stubborn or so paranoid that he still couldn't even admit it. And what struck me was a little bit before that, Josh, when Mary Madeline, of course, a Republican commentator, basically said he was insane. You know, he was not a rational thinker. Of course, the great irony is he, he put in the secret tape system and then ended up bringing him down. And I was just reflecting on the challenges we had in our own crisis, and these are not uh, these are crises of the heart opposed to what Nixon did, but with Clinton um, and the whole Monica Lewinsky scandal. And you know, he obviously tried to evade uh, justice, but in the end, he was contrite and uh, he apologized to the nation. And he's now the most popular politician on the planet. So there's there's a story there, an arc about redemption and a second act, and how do you apologize and own up to uh, your faults? And I think that society gives you a second chance. Nixon never believed that, or never had the opportunity. But to do there that. is a big difference between, and I don't know what the line is, and depending on the job you have, where that line is changes. Um, but the difference between personal yep. behavior and um, business behavior. Uh, and that's a question you wrestle with all the time as to, you know, when, when is it, when is it appropriate to, to blow the whistle? If it's, when is it, when is personal, not personal? And when does it reflect on your ability to do your job? Yeah. And talking about second chances and blowing the whistle, it, it, we've seen presence in our society uh, of people like John Dean, uh, but it, it, reminds us how honest and heroic in many ways people like Dean and Butterfield and Ruckelshaus were when when called to defy what was being asked of them by the White House. Let's hear number 20. That room was chock full of people. Boyfriends with girls standing on their shoulders, people in the window ledges up there, cameras all over the place. I'd like to uh, change the usual routine of questioning and ask minority counsel. Uh, to begin the questioning, Mr. Butterfield. Thank you, Mr. Dash. The old caucus room was packed full of famous names and celebrities and whatnot, you know, kind of a circus atmosphere, frankly. Mr. Butterfield, I understand you previously were employed by the White House. Is that correct? That's correct. During what period of time were you employed by the White House? I would like to preface my remarks, if I may, Mr. Thompson. With I'm sorry, I believe you statement. do have a... If, go right ahead. Although I do not have a statement as such, I would simply like to remind the committee membership that whereas I appear voluntarily this afternoon, I appear with only some three hours notice. I want to know, I was enjoying a haircut just at 11 o'clock today. Mr. Butterfield, are you aware of the installation of any listening devices in the Oval Office of the President? I tried to think, is, is that direct? Yeah, that's direct. That's a very direct question. 
I'm not trying to sound dramatic here, but I knew then that the jig was up. I was aware of listening devices. Yes, sir. Guys, that's not Alan Pakula's film. That's reality. That's Alex Butterfield. David Levy, that's Andrew Friendly talking about how he and he alone knew about the installation of a, of a listening device underneath the Oval Office. Yeah, it's a former colleague of ours was, a, was the president's aide. Yeah, that was a really dramatic yeah. point. And, you know, Dave and I, Zaz and I were talking about this last night because my kind of historical impression of John Dean was uh, he was the villain. He was one of the bad guys. But the film kind of portrayed him as one of the good guys in the end who kind of blew the, the whistle with Butterfield. And this goes to show you how complex history is. And I think for all of us, you know, who are so close to the president, and again, Dave and I were talking about um, George Stephanopoulos, an old colleague of ours, uh, Josh, who's gone on to, to big things, and the book he wrote uh, during the Clinton presidency, and how, for me personally, I'll just speak for myself, how when you serve the president, you really feel that personal connection for him and how, how important it is to serve the president. And everyone at the White House, you serve at the pleasure of the president and it revolves around one person's schedule and agenda and policy priorities. And so the sense of loyalty is so profound that I don't know if people who haven't experienced that can can really appreciate what these guys at Watergate must have been going through to get up there and to testify against the men that they were in battle with and campaigns and kind of the jig is up. That must have been so so tough for 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 those guys. And and thinking about the personal ramifications, but also the the historical ramifications. Very very dramatic time. But it's hard to it's hard to, uh, looking back, believe that Nixon was taping all of those conversations. Uh, you know the idea that he was documenting. And if you go back and listen to those tapes, and uh, I got a chance to to you know to 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 read and to hear uh, a lot more than we showed in, in the film, as many of your listeners probably have. And it's very striking. Uh, and it's, a lot of it is very personal. It's off-color. Um, and it, it's, it, it's so hard to believe that he would have taped all that. And the interesting uh, thing about, I think, one of the takeaways is that for a long time, I think there was this focus on, well, that's what you can't do. There's a lot that you can do, but you've got to make sure that there is no smoking gun, that there is no tape, that uh, that it can't be verified. And in fact, if there was no tape, uh, then we, there probably would have been no movie, and they would they they never would have been able to get it to get to get Nixon because it was his own words. And what's funny today, as we talk about how technology has changed, I think the idea of taping conversations for people just instinctively would be frightening, and people would clam up, and they would they wouldn't talk freely yet. The majority of the number one weapon for U.S. attorneys today, the number one weapon yep. for the SEC, is email. Absolutely. And the ability, the the the, the willingness of people to write things uh, in in email uh, that becomes the the roadmap for both intent and and behavior. So in in some ways we've changed. Uh, you think we've changed a lot, but you know I I think that that email today is the equivalent of the noose that uh, that the tape was for Nixon. Let's hear a little bit of that actual noose, number 10. What's the note on the wire There's nothing new, because I think the country doesn't give much a about it. And most people around the country, I think, think that it's routine. Everybody's trying to bug everybody else. It's politics. The great thing about this is it is so totally up and so 
We could have done it. That's right. I know I put that in. So just beyond conservation. Well, I mean, it, it, it sounds like a comic conference. It really does. It didn't make a funny damn movie out of it. Well, they did indeed make a funny damn movie about it, but as Robert Redford reminds us, it wasn't funny at all. Um, but let's move on to some things that are funny, uh, because it was a big week for Discovery a couple weeks ago, the upfronts for the uh, for what's coming in the year ahead. Uh, David Zaslav, David Levy, I'm looking at um, a new scripted series called Klondike. I'm looking at Walenda Live, a walk across the Grand Canyon. Uh, Jimmy Woods in, uh, in, a, in a new show, uh, This Changes Everything About Science. William Hurt on a series with Richard Feynman about uh, all of his incredible work. How the brand of Discovery seems to be expanding not only across your your real estate of 14 channels in the U.S., but very quickly around the world. Well, uh, we are the number one platform media company in the world, uh, thanks to John Malone and Bob Myron and the Newhouse family and John Hendricks. They've invested for the last 25 years in getting us channels. As you said, we have 14 channels here in the U.S., and we have between six and 14 channels in 210 countries. The focus for us over the last seven years that I've been here is to make those channels great, to tell great stories with great characters, and get more and more people watching our channels. A piece of that is more investment. We've gone from investing about 500 million to a little over 1.2 billion. But a bigger piece of it is about getting the right creative people working for us and with us. Uh, as you talk about some of those projects that we're doing, working with William Hurt on this project, 73 Seconds, is a little bit akin to what we were trying to achieve with All the President's Men Revisited. It's, it's about the challenger, and it's about what happened. It's about seeking truth. Um, and it, in that case, it's scripted, but it's true. And so when you see us at Discovery going after scripted, we're most comfortable doing it where we're, where we're, we're looking at a historical event where it, it may not be a documentary, it'll be scripted, but you'll learn something, it'll be true to the facts, and it's one hell of a story what happened with Challenger and, and uh, the mistakes that they made, and, and, and in that case, there was a lot learned from what happened. Yeah, look, I mean, it's, it's the golden age for, for content. More people are watching more video and more devices in more countries than any time before in our history. So if you have strong brands like we do here at Discovery, Animal Planet, Science, TLC, you know how to tell good stories. There's a huge growing market, and we've been rational actors, so there's, there's business models around that. So we're able to sell our content to ca cable companies, satellite companies, telco companies, and now these over-the-top uh, like Netflix and, and, and Amazon, those platforms. So, you know, it's a fun time. It's an exciting time, and I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't plug my boss who I'm sitting here next to. But... And when we took, Dave took the company public in 2008, we were valued at about five or six billion. And today it's nearly 30 billion. And so it's just been a remarkable value creation story over the last five years and during the Great Recession. Um, and so there's a lot of wind at our back right now. And we've got a lot of bets that, that we're playing. Script is one. The Oprah Winfrey Network's another one that's just going gangbusters. Um, and, you know, I like to say Shark Week works everywhere in the world. You know, our, our, our model is very evergreen. It's very long tail. We're able to amortize that in multiple windows across every country in, in the world. So if you love a documentary on the Amazon, the Great Wall, sharks, dinosaurs, um, you know, we, we've got an offering for you. So it is a really dynamic time for us, not without challenges. And David Carr has been one who's t documented those. But in some respects, this really is the golden age for content. Uh, I just hope that a future se a future season of both Northwoods Law and Fighting Bigfoot, both of which uh, are very popular among my 
my kids and my nieces and nephews as uh, as we wake up on a Saturday morning, David Zaslov, as you've said, I think many times, it's it's interesting and it's safe, but it's also real, isn't it? It is. And our strategy really is a little bit different than most media companies because we still believe that you can create new channels in America and around the world. If it's a good brand and you tell good stories, you could still get, we believe, we could still get people to come. And so when you look at our overall strategy, we have Discovery, we have TLC, but we've launched or invested in more channels than most media companies, or maybe if many of those media companies combined, own our new network with, with Oprah, which is doing terrific, and we now have Tyler Perry as our partner. The Hub, which is a new kids network we have in the U.S. with Hasbro. We launched ID, Investigation Discovery, four years ago. We invested a bunch of money. We have a great operating leader there, Henry Schleif. But today, it's the number nine network in America, and it's a top five network in day and, and at night. We launched a new network, Destination America. We invested in science, Animal Planet. And it really comes down to that with all the channels, there's more than 200 channels here. As you go across Europe, there's lots of choice. But people still only watch between six and eight channels. And so we believe that we can still enhance brands, create channels, and if we tell great stories, that we could be one of those six or eight. And that's really, that's our mission. And as much as we look at dollars, the thing we really look at is market share. Are people spending more time with our channels? Last year, the cable industry in terms of viewership was flat, and we grew 8%. It means more people were watching OWN, Discovery, TLC, Science, Destination America, ID, and so it's it's that belief in create in that in 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 creating channels and telling stories that drives us to hire as many creative people as we can, and to continue to invest more money in content to try and aggregate you know more fans of our brands. Just a quick coda on that, Josh, because you mentioned Klondike, which is our first scripted series, and it's it's not something that's going to change our fundamental business or offering or our model. We'll still be ninety uh, percent plus nonfiction. But when Dave talks about market shares, how do you go about doing that? And it's really bringing it back to all the presidents men revisited is can you look at different genres? Can you look at ways to increase your share? And script is one way. You talked about Will Linda Live doing big live temple, big noisy specials is another way. But also going back to the history genre, the Discovery brand absolutely has brand permission to go into history. I think you'll see us hopefully working again with Andy Lack and others to, to have more history. And so as we go forward and try to take share, we're looking at other genres that we can kind of have audience acquisition, um, not just in our core natural history, science, and other genres. David Levy, you transitioned from the White House directly to Discovery. You've been there a long time. David Zaslov, as you said, uh, you've been there since 2007, but had an earlier turn in your career. As you're talking about making content based on our shared experience of history, uh, but also making it uh, uh, out of things that are much more of the artists are much more available in New York or Los Angeles or Europe. How is basing your operations and your headquarters in Washington, D.C. either a help or a hindrance? Well, it's interesting. I, when I first got here, we had, uh, we had the whole promotion group come up and we looked at the, at the promotion in, in uh, Silver Spring. And there, we, we were questioning, is, is, this, is, is this our best work? And I sat down with the head of the team and I said, you know, how good is this team? And he said, they're, they're great for Silver Spring. And what that did was it changed our philosophy. The truth is that 80% of, of the people that were in Silver Spring are still here because they're really good. 
But what it did do for us is to say we can't just be Washington. We got to go to where the best and the brightest people are. And so we opened that operation in L.A., we have a big operation in New York, we have a big operation in London, and we have the added advantage that we're actually local in over 200 countries around the world with teams all around the world. So part of our strength is that philosophically we want the best people and the most creative people, and we're willing to be flexible about where they are if they'll work with us and tell great stories. Before I let you go, and I know you guys have to get back to work, uh, it's been a, a poignant week for us all, and I'm, my memory is drawn back to September 1st, uh, 2010. David Levy and David Zaslav, you were both there, when Discovery dealt with its own issue similar to what the people of Boston with are dealing with this week. Uh, reflections or comparisons between then and now? Uh, I'll just say that that was, uh, that was an incredibly dark day for us. We... Uh, there were there were several hours. Uh, we, there was a terrorist that came into our lobby and held uh, a few three of our employees hostage and was threatening uh, them and telling them that they wouldn't see the end of the day. He was uh, he had a bomb attached to him. Uh, it was it was a very very difficult day. It was, uh, but it, the best of the discovery culture came out that day. We have a daycare center. And employees were coming back to the building to make sure that all the little kids and babies were safe. Um, we had uh, a number of our key employees were refusing to leave until they went door to door and made sure that every Discovery employee was safe. And we had great collaboration with the local police department. And Martin O'Malley himself was just uh, an extraordinary leader that day and helped us get through it. So well, we look back and we say we were lucky. Uh, and we were grateful because uh, it could have been uh, a very, very dark day. Yeah, you know, I mean, like the first responders in Boston and also in West Texas, for that matter, you, these darkest days, you, you, sh you see the, the brightest lights and, and the heroism of our employees and our HR staff and admin staff and security staff is really what sticks with, with me. And, like, I can't look at crises now. The first thing I thought of when the Newtown shootings happened was, our experience here and the first thing when the Boston thing happened was thinking about what happened here to us at our headquarters and how lucky we we were I mean there was no loss of life other than the perpetrator no damage no lawsuits uh, everyone came back no one got hurt it's a miracle yeah, the so terrorist was killed in our lobby and um, the next day every employee came in they were in at 8 o'clock they wanted to make a statement that they were coming back to their building and uh, they weren't going to they weren't going to let this affect discovery, its culture. Uh, but it was it, it was a pretty ugly day. And I don't think it has. You know, we don't recognize it on September 1st. There's no memorial. We don't, we don't let it become part of who we are, part of our journey, our brand. We don't talk about it. We've moved on. We, got, we were very blessed not to have any lingering issues from it. And it's been a case study. You know, the FBI has come in and briefed us afterwards. And, and it really is now a case study of how a company prepares for such tragedies, how you, you work with a local community. And it's uh, the first time in American history that a suicide bomber um, came into an establishment and only the perpetrator was killed. There was no other damage. And Dave mentioned he had one bomb, but he actually had two oxygen canisters on the back of his of, you know, his back and so it wouldn't have been like an Iraqi IED or what was in Boston it would have been a they estimated a four-story 
uh, fire plume if it had gone off in our building. And, of course, it was 1245 in the afternoon, so it was right at lunchtime. So it, it could have ended a lot, lot differently. And, and um, the, the takeaway is, uh, sadly, it's uh, um, there's a lot of crazy people out there, and you see what happened in Boston. I, I spent three years in Boston. Uh, just uh, horrendous, really just su- such a terrible tragedy. Joshy, we can't end on that though. And so one thing, no, I want to no, play, no. Just, just, Go ahead. Just, but just to bring it back, well, just to bring it back to, since this is polyoptics, absolutely polyoptics. And this is so, Dave. So Josh is really one of the great um, leaders of the last twenty-five years, and 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 using media and communications to promote the White House and uh, a political agenda. And so, Josh, I thought what what's, what really stood out in the film last night was those er- early clips of Nixon talking about the optics of politics. So right before he went on, addressed the nation, uh, re- resigning, and this kind of really odd banter he was having with the Let's hear that from number guys. two. Have you got an extra camera in case the lights go out? Two minutes to 15 seconds to air, please. Yeah, I know. This was much worse than we thought. Nixon was worse than we thought. What happened was worse than we thought. And then, uh, and then let's hear number three. No, there will be no picture. Just take it right now. This is right after the broadcast. You got it? Come on. Okay. That's enough. My friend Ollie, oh, he's about to take a lot of pictures. Of me. <laughs> I'm afraid he'll catch me picking my nose. <laughs> Levy, Clinton would say things like that to me all the time. <laughs> it's just crazy. I mean, it's 10 seconds before he's about to resign, you know, the presidency to the country. And he's making jokes my about picking knows. his nose. going to pick my nose. Yeah, I mean, I didn't appreciate, again, you know, just how odd Richard Nixon was. I mean, he was just one odd cat. Uh, so I know you and I were in the Oval Office many times right before the president would go live to the nation. And it's so tense and it's, you know, you're filled with the drama. And so to hear hear him talking about picking his nose is just really well uh, really striking and and you know it, it is a very tough week and it's going to be a very tough weekend in boston we've been talking about 2010 and what you guys went through and we ended a bit on a low note but you know part of my point is as we are uh taping this 98th episode of polyoptics is that we try to point out the things that are truly educational interesting fascinating for people to pay more close attention to than they might uh might not otherwise do. And Sunday night at 8 p.m. on Discovery is a revisit of a story that many of us know, but none of us have seen put in this perspective by the filmmakers, by the actors, uh, by the participants themselves, both the reporters and the people who worked in the White House, who with 40 years of perspective, uh, I think have a very different story to tell. And so uh, Sunday night, 8 p.m., and then uh, in whatever uh, reruns we can see on Discovery, Uh, All the President's Men Revisited by Robert Redford uh, with Andy Lack for Discovery Communications. David Zaslov, President and CEO of Discovery Communications. David Levy, my old pal. Let's go out with number eight uh, with a little bit of an up note because uh, Nixon not only got elected once, he got elected twice. Nixon now. Nixon now. David Zaslav, David Levy, thanks a lot for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks, Josh. Take care now. History in the making. This is POTUS, Sirius XM 124.
tell you a story As I mentioned at the top of the show, before we talk to David Zaslov and David Levy, this has been a traumatic week uh, for my hometown of Boston. And as our regular listeners of Polyoptics know, we usually tape this on Thursday or Friday. We're taping it on Friday, which at the moment still has breaking news of one suspect, perhaps more, uh, in the marathon bombings still at large in Boston. And I woke up having gone to sleep reading Twitter and waking up reading Twitter, and I saw one tweet from Jason Gay, which was exactly as I might have tweeted out. He said, nothing like waking up, calling your parents, and telling them to stay inside their house. Jason, how are your parents doing? They're just fine, you know, like everybody else in Boston. I think they're just a little on edge and curious about when the situation is going to resolve itself and hoping that there's a resolution soon. Um, but yeah, you know, they, they live in Belmont, Massachusetts. I was born in Watertown. Uh, my family moved to Belmont when I was really young, so all that area is quite familiar to me. And so, like a lot of folks, you know, waking up for the news this morning, it's really surreal to see the lockdown of the city. So, uh, you grew up in in Watertown and Belmont, uh, in Sebastian Youngerville. I I grew up in Newton, um, and like you, had many experiences as a kid, uh, going a couple hundred feet or a couple hundred yards to watch. Uh, I was at mile 17 of the marathon. I don't know where you were. And in this chaotic week, there's been so much reporting that has been speculative and wrong. You, as a sports columnist, have the opportunity to do something that is much more tightly targeted and, and is going to be right. What was your thinking as you watched Patriots Day and Monday happen and what you needed to write next? Well, first of all, I mean, I remember waking up Monday morning and just sort of, you know, I live in New York City now and, and realizing it was Patriots Day and realizing the marathon was underway and realizing the Red Sox game was on and just thinking, you know, this is one of the great, great days in sports history. In Boston, you know, it's just a fantastic day. I, you know, lived in the city for a long time. I worked at the Boston Phoenix for a bunch of years, and that was just such a great ritual to be able to go to that Red Sox game, then go to the marathon. I had the chance to do the marathon a couple of times as a runner. You know, anyone who's experienced it knows it's an extraordinary day. And then to just have it unravel and just to see those eyewitness reports start to come out of oil Street is just devastating. I mean, this is a, an attack on the country, obviously, but an attack on, you know, just a remarkable event in terms of just this global reach. Um, it's a rather extraordinary sports event. Your writing talent could have taken you a couple different directions. Uh, it, it brought you to Boston Billy Won't Stop Running, and it put you in the story itself. How did you decide to uh, knock on Bill Rogers' door and share with our listeners, uh, as I know, what what iconography Bill Rogers brings to the story? Sure. I mean, just speaking personally, you know, uh, you know, as a kid who grew up in the 70s and 80s in Boston, uh, Bill Rogers was the marathon. This was a guy from New England, from Connecticut, who just came in and transformed that race, transformed distance running in this country. You know, Frank Shorter, of course, having the breakthrough in 72 in Munich, but Bill Rogers is the guy who really just put the sport on the map. It's hard to explain to people nowadays because, you know, running has, though it's become a much more well-monetized sport, it's been kind of marginalized in this country in terms of the spectator sport. But Bill Rogers on the cover of Sports Illustrated twice. You know, he ran, he got calls from the president after winning marathon. You know, this is a guy who was really kind of a rock star within the genre of uh, distance running. And, and, you know, he personified this race 
And so in the aftermath of this, this terrible devastation, you know, just almost sort of trying to think therapeutically, you know, who is the person who's most representative of that race? And Bill Rogers, in some respects, still the soul of the Boston Marathon. You look at the old photographs of him winning, you know, running in gardening gloves, running in a Snoopy hat. So that's sort of the heart and soul of that majestic race. And so I reached out to him. He's 65 now, still very active, still in vacation, distance running. And I just asked him if we could go for a run. So that's what we did. On Wednesday morning, I met him out at his house. He lives not far outside the city. And we just went for a trail run, good thought, like 40-minute run or so, and, and just talked about everything that had gone on. And like everybody, he's just horrified by what had transpired in Boston. And, you know, to see the, especially, you know, the location of it, the finish line, you know, the site of really event that transformed Bill Rogers' life now turned into this crime scene. It's just terrible. And President Obama came up to Boston uh, and echoed what everybody pretty much knew, but uh, it helps to have it come out of the president's mouth that the Boston Athletic Association will hold the Boston Marathon on Patriots Day next year. But you sort of broke some news with your uh, easy, gentle seven-mile jog around the Boston uh, western suburbs. What did Bill Rogers have to tell you? Well, I think he had been telling a few people, but, but yeah, he just said that uh, he intended to run the marathon next year, uh, that, that he had given it some thought. He had been sort of had this plan in his head that 2015 is the 40th anniversary of the first time he won in 1975, and that he was going to try to do it then at 67. But why not do it this year? I mean, why not do it in 2014, rather? It's going to be obviously a very significant event in the city's history, uh, and, and why not have the most... Um, significant runner in the run- race's history run it. I think he just understood the significance of it and so was motivated to do it. But, you know, just to underline something that's, I think, very important, that the athletic endeavor here is just a tiny, tiny fraction of this story. Obviously, this is, for many people, just a terrible and devastating event that has ripped apart families and it's been a really, really trying week for the city of Boston. It's obviously still a very active cr- criminal investigation. And, and so the, the athletic component of this is, is still rather small in that context. Yeah, and, and it sounds from your piece, that it, which was even written several days ago now, that Bill Rogers is very much aware of that. I mean, when you finish your run and you come back into the house, uh, you describe sort of the perspective that he puts it all, all in. There are his uh, four plates uh, from winning the New York Marathon neatly tucked away in their Tiffany boxes, but he's got something very different in his hands, doesn't he? Well, he's talking about Martin Richard, who's the young yeah. man who was killed at the finish line. And, you know, you think about uh, the, the, the personal impact and the devastation and just the, the grief that this uh, has, that has happened in Boston. I mean, he's personified that. And Martin Richard was photographed with a sign in one of his classrooms where, um, um, I don't have it in front of me, so I'm just sort of quoting quote loosely, just like, you know, people should be good to each other in peace and and to Rogers and to anybody who sees that message, I think Martin Richards' name will live on. Jason Gay, sports columnist for the Wall Street Journal, uh, fellow Bostonian with me. It's it, On a weekend like this, you'd, you'd normally take great heart in the amazing uh, beginning of the season of John Farrell's Red Sox, but it all has to be in perspective, and hopefully uh, as we think toward the future and, and uh seeing a Boston Marathon wending its way again from Hopkinton to Boston next year. This will all be behind us, but it's very much uh, front and center today. Jason, thanks for doing that piece. Thanks for going for the run with Bill Rogers, and uh, best to your family and mine. Appreciate it. Thanks for your time. Bye-bye. We build and we work and we love and we raise our kids to do the same, and we come together to celebrate life 
and to walk our cities and to cheer for our teams when the Sox and Celtics and Patriots or Bruins are champions again, to the chagrin of New York and Chicago fans, the crowds will gather and watch a parade go down Boylston Street. And this time next year, on the third Monday in April, the world will return to this great American city to run harder than ever and to cheer even louder for the 118th Boston Marathon. Bet on it. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. Our producer is the extraordinary Catherine Caperton. You hear us here each Saturday on Sirius XM Channel 124 POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter at Polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS. Cause I love-